0: Uh, hey,
1: this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right?
0: This is. Okay, we're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is straight from the cutter's mouth.
1: Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a Retina Podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 295, I have the pleasure of being joined by three of my colleagues for a Journal Club podcast. Dr. Seven Deng, Nicholas Farber, and Yoshihiro Yonakawa joined me to discuss four recent articles in major ophthalmology journals. First, we review the DRCRNET's protocol W trial that compared sham treatment versus intravitreal aflibercept for the treatment of patients with moderately severe and severe nonproliferative diabetic retinopathy. Next, we move on to a post-hoc analysis of the Clarity trial. We then discuss an article about racial and socioeconomic disparities in the treatment of diabetic macular edema. And we end with an interesting randomized control trial looking at the use of antivagF for treatment and prophylaxis of wet age related macular degeneration. As always, you can find all of the article links in the episode description. You can also find a list of financial disclosures for participants and information on how to claim CME credit via the American Academy of Ophthalmology all in the episode description. from the Cutter's Mouth is now back with a Journal Club episode, uh, joined by three retina specialists from around the country. Uh, we're going to work our way from east-south up to east-north, so starting with Dr. Nick Farber, uh, who's in Tallahassee. Nick, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Jay. In the east-north, uh, we have Dr. Yoshio Nakawa in Philadelphia.
2: Thanks very much for having me back.
1: And I'm not going to be obnoxious and say it's the West Mid in the Midwest in St. Louis. It's Dr. Uh, Sabin Dane. Thanks for having me, Jay. All right, let's do this. We got four articles to discuss. Uh, big one, breaking news, hot off the press in the last couple of weeks. Um, it's actually three weeks out now, time goes fast, but by the time this goes up, it's still within the last month, is this protocol W randomized clinical trial, the effect of intravitreous anti-vascular endothelial growth factor versus sham treatment for prevention of vision, threatening complications of diabetic retinopathy. Um, this is an article in Maturi et al, published in JAMA Ophthalmology. Uh, and so, Yoshi, run us through this article. What was the design? What did they show? And uh, then we can get into implications.
2: Yep. So this was another hot DRCR paper. Uh, The network is in our role with protocol V, protocol AB, and now protocol W. And the goal of this paper was to understand the role of anti-VEGF treatment in patients with non-proliferative PDR without DME. So they compared sham versus injections for patients with moderate or severe NPDR and no center involving DME. So this addresses a really interesting and depending on uh, how you view it, like an FDA approved, but sometimes controversial topic in actual practice. And so the, the study randomized 400 eyes and patients were assigned to either a flibrocept or a sham. And the injections were administered uh, three monthly back to back and then two months later, and then every four months for two years. And uh, from year two to four, which is not part of this study. Uh, this particular paper is only up to two years. Uh, the injections were administered unless the eyes became mild NPDR. And of note, the eyes received rescue treatment of aflibercept injections if the eyes developed center-involving DME with vision loss or high-risk PDR. And so about the results, uh, here's the one-liner. Basically, anti-VEGF treatment resulted in less center-involving DME, less PDR, and improvement in diabetic retinopathy severity scales, but there were no differences in visual outcomes. So the two-year probability of developing PDR or DME was 16% with a flibricep treatment and 44% with sham. So about three times the risk reduction, if you injected these patients. And the probability of developing PDR, similar, that was about double the risk reduction, developing center-involving DME, about three to four times the risk reduction. But again, there was no change in visual acuity. And it's not that DME and PDR-related issues are not visually significant, but remember that these eyes in the sham arm were rescued also. So it's not withholding treatment for two full years, in the sham group, it's more, it was more delaying treatment and injecting if more standard indications arose. And so this was kind of similar to protocol V in a sense, where they showed that delaying treatment of eyes with uh, DME with good vision um, resulted in similar outcomes, whether you started treatment early or you waited until vision dropped a bit. Um, I think the key here is that patients were monitored very closely, probably closer than how we normally follow MPDR. Uh, Another thing is that I think listeners are also probably wondering, and the main reason why I think most people don't treat NPDR uh, routinely is the risk for endophthalmitis and where you can get a 20-20 eye that can become NLP in a matter of days. And so there were three cases of endophthalmitis in the study, all in the flibrocept arm and all were for prevention, not for rescue. And so we're still awaiting the four-year readout of the study. So the final results are it's still pending where some of these data could potentially diverge, where early treatment may result in better visual outcomes or may not, but for now, it doesn't seem to be the case.
1: That's a wonderful summary. There's a lot of stuff to talk about here. Um, and I, I would kind of break it down to, to three big categories we'll, we'll, we'll go through. And I think the first big category is, does it work to prevent these complications? And the answer you the answer is yes. Uh, and we learned that in the Panorama trial as well. Um, just to run through limitations before we get in discussion, they mention uh, one of the big limitations, which is also something to talk about is almost a 20% dropout rate, you know, so like, that's always a concern with the diabetic retinopathy or eye disease study is there, there is this dropout rate, we don't know what happens to those patients who disappeared. Um, they talk about the limitations, again, recept only, we don't have ranibizumab or bevacizumab assessed. So is it apples to apples, if you're using a different agent, we don't know based on this trial, though, you'd hope it'd be similar for, for PDR uh, prevention. Not exactly the same design as Panorama. Panorama was actually, I think, more frequent uh, in terms of the two groups, at least initially with the bloating doses, than here, where it went pretty quickly to every four uh, months. And that endothelitis rate is actually pretty atypically high. I mean, we know that there's an endothelitis injection uh, rate. Most studies quote one in 2,500 to 5,000. I was going to say this study isn't even powered to pick up endothelitis cases. And we have three. And unfortunately, they were all in the prevention group and not the rescue group, which is. I would say it's bad luck, but we there is some evidence that maybe diabetic patients who get injections may have a higher rate of endothelitis than non-diabetic patients that's been reported before. But um, Sabin, so let's get into to meat now. So if we talk about, first of all, the reduction, right? So if you compare the sham versus the treatment group, to me, one of the things that really stands out is even in the group that's treated, it's not a 0% risk. Like we always think anti-VEGF just works and it does, and we take it for granted and it's kind of a binary way to learn it. but it doesn't prevent everything. And maybe if you administered more often it would prevent it, but this is actually not dissimilar from Panorama where if you look at the treatment group, it's not a 0% risk of development of these complications. I think you're bringing up a great point. I mean,
0: at the end of the day, if we had a 100% guarantee we're gonna prevent all pathology, then it's, it's a much more compelling picture. But if I have a diabetic patient who is twenty twenty in my chair and I say, well, this is the chances of us reducing your risk of developing these complications, uh, of diabetic retinopathy, it's, it's a harder sell because it is not a, a 100% guarantee you're going to do that. And it is a little surprising to me at how much of these people still develop pathology on and like anti-VEGF. Um, so I think that is something for us to take home, that this is a very aggressive disease in terms of their VEGF load. And it's just maybe quarterly and every four month, ILEA is just not so efficient to suppress that.
1: I mean, the A1Cs, I always look at that. It was like 8.3, 8.6. This is actually way better than most of our patients we see in the clinic. So you would expect, and they're compliant. These are the patients who came back, not the 20% who disappeared. Um, Nick, does this move the needle for you? Like uh, talking about the results, Sabin's so just referencing. I think Yoshi kind of implied that he felt the same, that this isn't necessarily something that's going to compel him to start treating these NPDRIs. Do you feel similarly? And what's kind of driving your decision-making there?
3: I do feel sim- uh, similarly in that, you know, we didn't see an improvement in vision. And, and at the end of the day, that's what we're talking to our patients about. They want to go home and read and they want to see their families and they want to be able to drive. Um, I do think the fellow eye status in our real clinic matters a lot. If you've already had an eye that's lost uh, two PDR, uh, you know, or, or you're getting injected for DME, we didn't see what these fellow eyes were doing. And so it could be that that person, when you're individualizing it, is more likely to develop a complication. Uh, I also, when they broke it down from moderate NPDR, uh, sorry, moderate severe NPDR and severe NPDR, the severe NPDR, if we're getting kind of granular, progressed to PDR at 68% versus the moderate severe was 24%. So really getting granular Uh, you know, made a difference, made a big difference um, with PDR. And I know that this study wasn't powered to see those outcomes, um, but it certainly uh, strikes a chord, as well as making sure that we are monitoring our patients every four months. That's what they did in this study. They had, you know, very uh, purposeful monitoring. And so I don't like to get my diabetic patients that much further than that. And it kind of underscores that diabetes is a chronic disease. When they show up in our clinic, we are seeing a path that they've been on for at least five years, if it's type two. Um, and so we just, you know, may have more information once we get to the long-term study to talk about visual outcomes uh, and see some of these uh, you know, convergence to a PDR and clinical uh, DME actually have visual outcomes.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to see if they, what's the retention rate for, for four years with COVID-19, you know, I mean, that's a fascinating thing to think about. And, and the retention rate for these studies, you look at protocol S, the retention rate dropped significantly over time. So it's really a question how much is that data adding if you're only looking at the patients who end up following up and it's a small subset of the original. Um, and, and Nick, you, you brought up a good point about um, the chronicity. I mean, we, this is the problem a little bit, I think with maybe charts before, but now, especially with EMR and carrying forward diagnosis is patient comes in, we give them a static diagnosis, your moderate MPDR, your severe MPDR. And then it sort of gets carried forward, right? They're just that, but it's not. I mean, the study is showing it's dynamic. It's constantly changing. It can get worse. It can get better. And these patients change over months and years that we follow them. The 68% versus 24% is a great pickup. Uh, I think that I I personally, and and Yoshi, you can comment. I don't sit there and, and score between 47 and 53. I mean, very few of us are taking fundus photos and grading We get wide field FA, which is not part of that standard DRSS grading. Maybe we'll get a new grading score based on wide field FA in the future. But I mean, it really makes me think. The other thing I think about is the patients who aren't treated. It's almost, again, like panorama, almost 50% have some sort of issue slash complication, center involving DMA, PDR, and then your future. It goes back to Nick's point. I don't think you need to treat them up front, but you need to have a long conversation and kind of come to Jesus moment with them where you're like, especially if the first time you're seeing them, they're like, hey, we aren't doing this now but there's a very, very high probability, almost a coin flip probability that you may need me to do something in the future. And, and Yosh, I, I want to comment on one other thing. What do you, going back to the idea that not all these patients get completely better at anti that's a little depressing slash sobering. I mean, I always think with the with Panorama, I thought the same thing. I think the interesting takeaway is maybe if you had an anti treatment that was one time, people are looking at gene therapy, the port, something longer, maybe this would be, worth it if the endophthalmitis rate was, was overall lower. If you're injecting once, let's say, versus multiple times sequentially, maybe this benefit is worth it, but it still underscores that's not going to solve all the problems if both in panorama and the study, you have 15% of these patients still have some sort of issue while getting anti-VEGF. Uh,
2: Jay, I agree that the future, um, you know, uh, we will be treating more of these eyes with longer-acting medications. If I were a patient with severe diabetic retinopathy, I would want anti-VEGF on board. Um, not every month, but if it's a one-time injection that lasts like a year, that'll be pretty awesome. And I always mention anti-VEGF as an option, uh, when I see patients with severe NPDR. and the vast majority of patients, uh, don't go for it. I never push them, but I have a few patients who were really intrigued and wanted to do it. Their eyes look beautiful and, uh, you know, three to four times risk deduction. That's pretty significant. I know it, it's not a, a silver bullet, but a lot of patients do well on this. And um, I think that uh, more data is great. I I like the study for providing that uh, information. And like you mentioned, uh, it doesn't provide all the uh, other physiologic factors like non-perfusion and stuff like that, that I think does matter. Um, But I think that uh, it's a a good treatment option to have. And it's a direction that we're probably headed in.
1: So any other thoughts or comments on the study?
0: You know, so... Uh, there's a couple of patients that i have on anti-vegf for severe npdr and just like yoshi said these people look amazing i mean it really works to regress a retinopathy but the issue i've run into is we you know we get that initial success but how do we keep that momentum going how do we keep them interested in coming back because unfortunately our patients lives get busy and this does not become a high priority for them. And what I worry is that we give them also a false sense of security as a retinopathy improves. And we say, oh, look, it's looking so much better. And they get this mental picture like, this is no longer a concern, uh, concern for me. They don't really internalize the risk that they have by not coming back for their follow-up, because they're going to go right back to their old coin flip of a risk of getting PDR center involving DME. And I don't think that quite comes through, at least when I've used this on patients.
1: Nick, any final thoughts?
3: I just think we need to remember that this study, they started with fantastic vision. It was 2025 or better. And that is not always the case in our own clinics, I must say, or at least in my clinic. <laughs> um, you know, generalizing this to my general diabetic uh, that I'm seeing, I think I need to take that into a fact, uh, you know, factor as well. Um, and I really think what we're looking for is disease modifying drugs, which is a term used a lot in other areas of medicine. And I think we still have room to grow uh, especially when you see, uh, like we are talking about, that disease is still progressing even when we treat it.
1: Well, let's continue on that theme because the next article is called Topographical Response of Retinal Neovascularization to a Flibercept or Panretinal Photocoagulation in Proliferative Diabetic Retinopathy. This is a post-hoc analysis of the CLARITY randomized trial. We did CLARITY actually probably a couple of years ago now. Um, Nick, you want to tell us a little bit about this study and it kind of ties into the point you just made?
3: Sure. So this was a UK study UK-based study at 22 sites. And what they were looking for is, uh, does the location of neovascularization comparing the disc versus elsewhere in PDR vary? And what does the effect of treatment modality have on this topographical regression based on whether they used a flipper set versus PRP? So this was a post hoc analysis. Uh, it was done during the pandemic, but the actual trial was not during the uh, done during the pandemic, just the analysis of a phase 2B randomized single mass Multi-center non-inferiority trial, the CLARITY trial. And so they included 120 treatment-naive patients with PDR. Uh, this was evaluated on color fundus photos and divided into four quadrants, and the patients received either intravitreal, flibricep, two milligrams uh, at baseline four weeks and eight weeks, so in other words, monthly for three months, and then PRN uh, 12 weeks onwards, or they got PRP, uh, which in this trial was fractionalized sessions at every two weeks for the first 12 weeks. So it seemed like they were getting six treatments of PRP every two weeks uh, and then PRN. And the PRN came into play Retreatment was defined as recurrence, persistence, or a new occurrence of neovascularization. So this included 75 men, 45 women, average age of 54.8, type 1 or type 2, uh, 18 years or older. Uh, Interestingly, uh, the treatment was switched to PRP if someone became pregnant or a blood clot clot developed during treatment. And the mean duration of diabetes in the trial was 25 years. That could be skewed by the type 1s. And the mean hemoglobin A1C was 8.8%. So, the results. So, at baseline, uh, NVD with or without NVE was observed in 35% of PDR versus NVE only in 65%. So, NVE was more common at baseline alone. Uh, And the NVE actually had a predilection for the nasal quadrant most commonly. Regression was higher uh, of the NVE as well, 87.3% compared to NVD. Only about half of the NVD went away at 52 weeks, regardless of treatment. Uh, it was resistant to both of them. And at 52 weeks, the higher regression of NVE was seen with a flipper set than PRP, 96% versus 78%. But there was no statistical significance for NVD. Uh, As we talked about, NVE was most commonly first found nasal, then superior, then temporal, and then inferior at baseline. And the superior quadrant uh, responded great with uh, most regression and the least persistent or recurrence. And actually the temporal quadrant uh, was the most resistant to regression. And there was also a lower recurrence in the aflibercept group at 52 weeks, which surprised me somewhat. So this brings to point, a lot of ideas, why is NVD? So resistant, Uh, you know, treating this, oftentimes what we were talking about, we think we're treating, we're doing a good job. We're doing PRP or we're treating with injections. We think we should have regression of NV. I gave you the treatment, but we know from UTDRS that PRP causes a 50% reduction in severe vision loss at 2%, excuse me, at two years. And I often remind patients, that's great. Who wouldn't take a 50% reduction in risk, but that still leaves out the other 50%, which is our coin flip. You know, NVD. Whether you know what this study didn't talk about and where the limitations are, it didn't talk about vision. And so, you know, does this disease translate into visual outcomes? Vitreous hemorrhage, tractional retinal detachments. And also, we don't know long-term studies of are is this persistent NVD different than de novo naive NVD? Is it going to lead to the same visual outcomes? Um, we don't know. And so they also didn't talk about any endophthalmitis rates or PRP side effects in this study. So that was hard to quantify. It was a uh, uh, post hoc analysis, um, but that would be interesting to know. Um, so what did everybody else think?
1: Yeah, I, I think you brought up the point I was thinking is, is it's a good study. I think it's cool. I think it's a cool study. And I think it's, it's interesting to think about Like you said. The NVD structurally does not go away the question that was not answered here is, does that NVD result in a worse clinical outcome, right? So so is it actually still active in the sense that it is going to cause a complication, or is it quote-unquote controlled? Now, we would assume we would like the NV, like you said, to go away completely, because it makes us feel better if it's gone, um, but... But the question is, Is those 50%, is that all 50% of those patients are going to do badly or are they just, they have NVD and it's structurally there and it will always be structurally there. And if you went and did a vitrectomy for those eyes, we've all been in those cases and you pulled on the nerve, you would get bleeding because those vessels are formed vessels and those vessels are not going to shrink. They are there and they're adherent to the hyaloid, but maybe you're reducing vitreous hemorrhage or other complications by treating them with laser or anti-VEGF. The other issue with clarity we talked about last time we reviewed the full paper the PR- PRP is always a hard thing to, to assess in these studies, right? Because everyone does PRP a little different. Yoshi, Hiro, Yonikawa PRP versus Sabindang PRP versus Nick Farber PRP versus Jay Shreedar PRP. Hopefully it's similar, but it's not going to be exactly the same. Everyone does it differently. And they talk about, they did like fractionated sessions, um, which I think is necessary in some instances and there's warranted in some instances, but if you're doing that routinely, uh, it is a little weak sauce, pardon my, my, my true uh, language for that. Like, I know that's not the technical term, but my point is like, it's not surprising that you get better regression with anti-VEGF than fractionated divided sessions of PRP versus a quote unquote full session of PRP upfront. And then you may get a more similar response in NV regression, but I don't know. But that's that this, again, this is a postdoc analysis. They, they just had the data was available to them from Clarity, but so you, then you had a point.
0: Yeah, no, I was just, I agree with you completely. I think with the PRP being fractionated, it's not really, I'm just having trouble taking this paper and applying it to my clinic is I guess what I'm getting to is that I'm not going to do fractionated PRP on my patients. I tried it. If I'm going to do a laser, I'm just going to try to get them one and done because these patients may not show up the next time. And uh, that's really troublesome. Um, and then if I'm trying to do an apples to apples comparison of a Fliberceps with PRP. That's the comparison I would personally want to see.
2: Yoshi? Uh, I agree. I also try to do one and done indirect, you know, laser photocoagulation, just blast away. And um, <laughs> I know that's similar to Miami style also.
1: No, yeah. that's your ROP background. I like to sit down and do it at the slit lamp.
2: Oh, really? But, okay, um, fine.
1: but my back hurts right. if I stand for too long. I'm, I'm soft.
2: So you're, you know, you're a very tall Yeah,
1: well, um, I, I will say this: I, if I have the of so and you said it won't change the way you treat your patients, it doesn't change anything for me either. But it does reinforce something to me surgically, which I referenced. Which is it, it doesn't matter how regressed a diabetic looks when you go to surgery. If you do choose to go to surgery for anything, vitreous hemorrhage or traction. If you try to pull directly on the nerve, which many people do, depending on the case, they start there. I prefer not to do that unless it's necessary for the case. For this very reason, it almost always bleeds because there's almost always vessels there. Now, again, in many cases, you can segment around that and leave that, and it won't cause issues postoperatively. But again, I do think structurally those vessels are there, even if you gave them pre-op antiveg or even if you injected them for months like this study, or even if you did PRP, there is some neovascularization that's still there, and that's why I don't do this routinely, but uh, I think Dan Jout dropped this as, as a, a bomb like a couple of years ago and he was really pushing for, like early vitrectomy. I think there's pros and cons to that. But I do think that we know that our current treatments within the office don't get rid of all neovascularization. Now, whether it's clinically relevant, like I was saying earlier, depends on the scenario. But I think, again, the only way to completely get rid of some envy is to inject and laser it and go in and lift it and physically cut it and cauterize it in some instances and you want to be cauterizing the nerve. And so sometimes you just aren't going to get rid of every single bleeder, every single vessel. That's not the point. Nick was talking about vision earlier. The point would be, you know, does the patient actually see well or maintain their vision over time? But Nick, any other thoughts on, on this paper?
3: I did find it interesting that the aflibercept group had less recurrence. I I tend to, right, formally thought of PRP as that's the more permanent treatment that's going to get in there and cause a sustained decrease in VEGF levels. Uh, That's not what this paper showed, uh, regardless of their method of PRP. I'm I'm usually a two-session PRP, or just to throw that out there, but uh, split it in half I find patients have been tolerating that uh, a little bit better for me. Um, I don't do a retrobulbar block usually either for them, so maybe if if I block to more. The other thing I, I was thinking, and I think this is just an avenue for future uh, research is what is going on at the disc? Why is it different? What factors are coming up from the posterior circulation from the glial cells around there? Why is the disc NV different than the peripheral NV? Uh, and so I'm sure one of our your smart listeners is going to figure that out.
1: Well, well, I'll bring it to Yoshi because he does peds. I mean, is it just a high-load issue, Yoshi? Do you think it's I mean, does it just have to do with the, with the insertion at the disc is different than at other places?
2: I think personally, I think it's NVD speaks as, um, it's a marker of more severe disease. And then you have more ischemia peripherally and the local uh, elevated VEGF will you know uh, uh, induce NVE more easily, I think. And by the time and you have neovascularization of the disc, that's a really hot eye. That's why the majority of patients with NVD will also have NVE and I think in this study it was the minority that had NVD only plus my one criticism of the study is that not every patient had ultra wide field angiography in this study and about only about half did I think and so if they looked at all the patients that number may have been skewed even more where there were no patients with only NVD.
1: Yeah and I think that um your point is well taken about severity. And I think the other point is that to Nick's point about recurrence, I think there's been a couple studies that have shown the best choice for this patient is both PRP and anti VEGF for that very reason. PRP alone does not achieve the same outcomes as PRP and anti VEGF. We always think of PRP as more permanent, but there is something to the anti VEGF effect that is different and complementary um, depending on the situation. So let's transition to the next paper, and I'll run through this. This is our last diabetic paper of the day. It's Rach. Racial, Ethnic, and Insurance-Based Disparities Upon Initiation of Anti-VEGF Therapy for Diabetic Macular Edema in the United States. This is by Maholtra et al. with Rishi Singh as the senior author. Published in Ophthalmology uh, just this past month. Um, And this is interesting. It's a retrospective cross-sectional study. They used the IRIS registry and looked over a nine-year period starting from 2012 to 2020. And this is a significant number. I mean, IRIS studies are always great. And we've talked multiple times about the pros and cons of iris database studies. They're like the king of database studies in our field. 200,000 patient, um, you know, injection treatments that were given for DME. Um, So they looked at essentially what was available with insurance, Medicare versus private insurance, Medicaid. They looked at racial demographics that reported in the chart. Um, And I think the big take homes are unfortunately not surprising and match some other studies is that if you have. Medicaid, you tend to have worse insurance than Medicare and private, ins- excuse me, worse vision than if you had uh, Medicare and private insurance. If you're non-Hispanic or white, you tend to have better vision um, than Black and Hispanic patients. And Black and Hispanic patients tend to have worse severity of diabetic retinopathy as documented um, when for these patients who are receiving injections. So it, it's interesting because I do think The iris registry has limitations, and we've talked about limitations of big data. It's messy, you're adding up to a lot of things, you're limited by what's in the chart, it's retrospective. But this sort of trend has been shown in multiple other avenues in terms of socioeconomic and ethnic differences in how care is received and insurance status and how it impacts this. So I think it's actually a very useful paper. And I think that it's something that brings to mind, what can we do as a field to address this, these are systems issues, right? Like this is, this is beyond just the patient in your chair, it's them, but it's also all the things that are at home that you're not seeing in their lives and how they differ. And some of this could be education between different cultures. Uh, some of this could be just access uh, and maybe there's a strong overlap in terms of access when you compare socioeconomic groups uh, and ethnic groups. So, um, Yoshi, thoughts on this paper? Did did you like it? And and what does it mean for your practice? Does it change anything in how you view things?
2: Yeah, I think this was, um, a very important paper and it supports the very well-known ophthalmic healthcare disparities. And you've done great studies looking at this question also. And, uh, as you mentioned, it, it is, uh, partly about the patient in your chair with the A1C levels. And that wasn't part of the study that I think, uh, hopefully, uh, it could be included in future ones, um, but also the socioeconomic demographic disparities that uh, are dependent and independent of the medical issues. And uh, you also have so many other things that play like systemic uh, racism and uh, poor access to care, even nutrition and healthcare literacy, everything is uh, connected. And so there's a lot more work to be done.
1: You referenced A1C and they talked about, I mean, one of the limitations, like we said, Iris, you don't get all the data. And I think A1C is one of those things we like to record it, but I don't think it's uniformly recorded in everyone's chart. It's not like there's a section in your intake that asks for A1C. Maybe there is, but it's often left blank because sometimes it's, it's skewed because the patients who do the worst don't know their A1Cs. They don't even know what it is and you have to educate them on it. Um, so Ben, any thoughts? Um, you're practicing in St. Louis, which is obviously um, similar to, to Philadelphia, and Miami, um, you know, has its racial diversities and, and um, differences, and kind of access to care.
0: I think this paper really is, as Yoshi and the rest of everyone saying, is is incredibly important because it does highlight the disparities that exist in ophthalmology, and this is something we see in any minority populations or lower socioeconomic populations. So this really, you know, we all have the anecdotal experience that these patients are coming in worse than a Medicaid patient. If uh, I have a Medicaid diabetic retinopathy referral on my schedule. I'm assuming that's gonna be somebody I'm likely to do an intervention on. Um, And this big data analysis really validates that uh, anecdotal experience. And I think this is actually one of the huge strengths of IRIS, and I'm hoping to see more work in this area. Because as we're pointing out, there is missing clinical data, but I I think it helps us with the big picture in terms of if we wanna advocate for our patients on a policy level I mean, something like this is huge. You know, we've got such a huge number of patients and we can actually go and say, look, geographically, these are the problems these patients are experiencing. This is what they're coming in with this degree of blurred vision. Imagine what that's doing for their ability to work. You know, they're going to be higher unemployment rates. There's going to be higher, um, you know, need for ancillary services. So this is something we can just help our patients kind of advocate for and getting them the resources they need. So they don't even get to that stage.
1: Yeah, and Nick Yoshi and, and the guys at Will's have written papers that have focused on zip code. I think zip code has been useful as a surrogate for socioeconomic status sometimes, or distance. They use the, the distance from a zip code to your office, for example. It's another surrogate for access. Um, any any final thoughts or, or points on this paper regarding the access issue? Because I'm sure you have patients, even in your own practice, it's an access issue in terms of how they can get into the clinic or even get to a
3: primary care doctor. Uh, I completely agree, and, and that is uh, an issue in my clinic. You know, forty-two percent of these patients are where you and I practice. They're in the south, and, and so we obviously have a uh, the lion's share of this, or you know, uh, quite a lot. Um, access is an issue, but everything. I think this paper underscores that everything that happens before they come into our clinic is an issue, and that's where the disparities lay. And then once they're in our chair you know, delivering that treatment on time and trying to get as much vision as we can. We all, you know, subscribe to the fact that the better the starting vision, the better the final vision. And we can see that the disparities are occurring, that, you know, if you are of a different race, if you are of a different ethnicity, you're starting from a lower starting point. And a lot of times that has to do with what happens before you get into our clinic. I agree this is a really important paper for policy to go and show how can we educate where are we educating? You know, what are the actual important strategies? And also something that's been brought up a lot recently is representation. And for ophthalmology, that's being proactive instead of reactive. We can take this data and say, why is, you know, people are more likely to follow treatment plans to see themselves as part of, of, a, of a treatment if they are represented, if they have a good connection, if they are, you know, feel trustworthy with their medical, uh, with their doctors and their medical team. And so where is our representation in ophthalmology and how are we increasing the medical literacy in our region uh, going forward? So let's
1: move on to our, our last paper. It was really well said, Nick, and uh, Sabine's going to take us home. We're going to switch to AMD. And this paper is intravitreal aflibercept injection versus sham as prophylaxis against conversion to exudative AMD and high-risk guys. This is a randomized control trial. This is a fascinating study, actually. Um, this is like a who's who of ophthalmology. We got Jeff Heyer, and Nadia Wahid and Wyckoff, and Brown, and Shaw, and Prenner, and Dang. And Dang's gonna tell us a little bit about this study.
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you. This is, I thought, a really fascinating study design. So this is a prospective randomized multicenter trial looking at high-risk, non-exudative AMD patients and giving them prophylactic um, aflibercept quarterly. So every 12 weeks over the course of two years and seeing if we can reduce the rates of neovascular conversion in those patients. So it's important to know what the authors defined as high risk. So that's when a eye has at least 10 medium drusen, one large drusen, retinal pigmentary changes, um, and the fellow eye has been diagnosed with exudative AMD. So these patients were enrolled to either getting a Flibercept or sham injections, again, quarterly, uh, for over 24 months. And the endpoint really was, at the end of the day, how many people converted to wet AMD at the 20, uh, by the 24-month visit. There was a total of 127 patients that were uh, reported and resulted into the study. That's 63 um, and 64 in each arm, respectively. Um, so cutting right to the chase, uh, did this work? And this is actually a null result study where it did not work. 9.5% of patients in the Aflibercept arm converted to exudative AMD by 24 months compared to the 10.9% in the sham group, which was completely insignificant at a p-value of 0.98. Now, despite this study having a primary outcome that was a null result, Um, I think there was a lot of really interesting questions that were generated through the sub analyses and just the primary thing Um, to get to the first thing is, why didn't this work, you know, you would think that if exudative AMD was a VEGF mediated process, the process of going to non exudative to exudative was VEGF mediated, this should have prevented something, but it really doesn't look like it didn't do anything. Um, So we can kind of discuss a little bit about that. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. And the other sub-analyses is, you know, this study looked at people whose exudative AMD eye had converted two years before, uh, less than two years ago, or more than two years ago. And there's this really interesting result uh, that I think a lot of us have seen in our own practice, that if an eye has converted to exudative AMD over two years ago, and the fellow eye hasn't. The probability that fellow eye converting is actually much less, and it's almost a two-fold rate, higher rate of exudative conversion in people who have had a more recent conversion. And the last thing, although it was a small sample size, this study did use OCT angiography to find non-exudative CMVs, and non-exudative CMVs, again, being choroidal neovascular membranes without leakage or hemorrhage on exam or regular OCT. And this provided us a small sample size of actually randomizing people with non-exudative CMVs to getting a Flibercept or sham injections. And what's interesting is that also made no difference. Those people with non-exudative CMVs still converted to AMD, uh, exudative AMD, despite getting the Flibercept. Uh, so I think a lot of uh, this generated a lot more questions for me than answers.
1: I think this is such a good study because for the reasons you said, it's, um, it's clean, it was well-designed, And the null result is fascinating because it's not what you would expect. You would expect the opposite. And any time a study gives you what you don't expect, I think it's really interesting to talk about. So there's a few things to unpack here. I mean, I think the first thing to talk about, let's go back to why it didn't work. We'll come back to that at the end. Um, The power calculation was done. And so the first thing I always look when there's a null result is like, was the study powered sufficiently? And they defined their power calculation. I believe their statistician said 128 patients, what they needed to enroll. It seems like a small number, but... The power calculation was there. Um, Yoshi, this is kind of, again, I don't want to get depressing about it, but it's kind of like the diabetic talk. Anti VEGF doesn't treat everything, right? Like we were talking recently, about, I was seeing conversation with a retina specialist. Patients who have submacular hemorrhage, despite getting anti VEGF therapy, um, patients, there are non responders to anti VEGF therapy. That's been reported in studies, 5 to 15%, depending on the study you believe, in terms of persistent or worsening intraretinal fluid, regardless of anti VEGF therapy. And then the final question is, even if the study showed a positive result, what would be the number needed to treat for you to treat these patients, given what we have now, which is therapy, let's say every four to 12 weeks. So let's work backwards. So like, what would the result have to be for Yoshihiro Yonokawa to treat a high risk patient? What would that risk reduction have to be for you?
2: No, I think we have to, um, well, first of all, uh, I was really hoping that the study would work and I was thinking that it would, um, you know, Clement Chan did a similar study uh, in his group previously, which uh, was also a negative study, but it trended towards significance. Um, And so I had my fingers crossed, but you know, it didn't happen. Uh, I think that if you did do the injections every month on these patients, it would have worked. But again, you know, uh, that's a lot of patients who may potentially be harmed by the injections. And so for me, Jay, uh, I'm not sure, but I think one thing we have to get really good at or better at is identifying the patients who will convert and catching them, uh, before that happens, uh, and perhaps not prophylactically treating them forever, but catching them maybe a few months before and starting treatment early and whether that's accomplished by not by humans, but artificial intelligence or other imaging modalities, I think that would probably be the goal, the the way to go in the future
1: yeah in this podcast we focus on shallow learning but deep learning probably would have been helpful to define treatment patterns here and, and yoshi you referenced the quarterly treatment nick going back to sabine's question let's go over that why didn't this work is it because the injections weren't frequent enough do you think that if they had done monthly as Yoshi suggested that maybe they would have seen a difference
3: That's an excellent question. Or is there just some other factor that is contributing to when that uh, exudation actually breaks through? You know, is the development of the uh, membrane one factor and, you know, and actually the exudation another, and that the breakthrough is just from some other cause? Um, Treating these more often, you know, as we said, it's going to incur more risk. We're going to have more endophthalmitis. We're going to have more patient visits. We're going to have more injections. Um, And so you really would have to have a significant decrease in the uh, rate of conversion. They also did their power uh, calculations based on the ARED study, which showed a 35% conversion rate in a fellow eye of a treated eye. And so, uh, you know, perhaps that was an overestimation, you know, or that, um you know so maybe that number was off maybe a slightly different powered study more patients would have shown a difference um so treating more often is going to be interesting um when we also look at the port delivery system you know because that's a constant amount are we going to start putting those in in fellow eyes uh you know in high risk guys <laughs> i don't think so but you know that's yeah. <laughs> you know, not, not, not with this data. I'm, I'm shaking my head.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, well, let's we'll take it step. We got, we got longer acting therapies. So it goes back to what we talk. What if we have treatment that is subretinal gene therapy? What if we have treatment that's intravitreal gene therapy? Are we going to treat fellow eyes? And then we got to talk about a separate thing, which we'll, which we'll leave off the table today is does that predispose to more dry AMD progression and geographic atrophy? And people talk about CMVMs being protective. We're not even going to open that because that, that's not what this paper was about, but The power thing is a good, again, I go back to the power thing. Um, And and I think your point about the the treatment, I'm just trying to think like, you know, Phil Rosenfeld has identified a lot of these uh, CNVMs and OCTA that don't have any subretinal or intraretinal fluid. And they find there is a certain percentage of them that eventually exude, but it's such a low percentage. He still recommends just watching until it happens and just monitoring them. Um, and your question about the breakthrough is interesting too, because we know that AMD CMVMs are probably the best defined CMVMs we have in our field, because that's where the highest end of patients and the longest history of treatment and the biggest need for treatment. But those are the CNVMs that are the least likely to come off of treatment. Those are the CMVMs that are mo- the most likely to need frequent treatment, as opposed to other types of CMVMs, myopic CMVMs, post-inflammatory CMVMs, traumatic CNVMs that can be dormant for long stretches of time and then can exude and can be dormant for a long of time but are more likely to go through long periods where they don't need any treatment. And I wonder if it goes back to some difference, like you said, in the RPE um, and, and what's going on at that level. Maybe the breakthrough has nothing to do with the VEGF mediated process, which is the CMD formation, but something to do with the integrity of the RPE, which is already a problem in these patients who have AMD. Regardless of CMVM or not, they have an underlying RPE issue. Um, so, Ben, I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or anything else uh, people have said.
0: No, I, I agree. And the short answer is, I don't have the answer. <laughs> uh, this uh, after this result came out, I spent a lot of time scratching my head because you know it it really made me question: Do I understand exudative AMD? Do I understand what causes people to turn into wet AMD? And uh, now I'm not so sure
1: I do I do understand. Yoshi <laughs> understands. Yoshi can tell us.
2: Please, Yoshi, tell us. The the only thing I understand is that, you know, this paper provided a lot of food for thought. And it's a question that we will continue to pursue, I think. And so so Sabin, on your next paper, I want you to figure it out, man.
1: There you go. I thought you were going to say something really poetic. Like the only thing I understand is I don't understand anything. (laughs) But but that would obviously not be true. Um, My last point before we break on this paper um, is... Nick, you referenced downstream effects, right? So like, are we going to be treating high risk eyes? Like, I think this paper reduces the chance that's going to happen, actually, Uh, until we get evidence that, yeah, until we get evidence that treating high risk eyes is beneficial. Are we going to treat the fellow eye of these patients with long duration anti vegf therapy? My answer right now, based on this evidence, and what I'm feeling is no. So I was shaking head at the port question. Um, I would rather just see what happens, uh, even though it's scary for a lot of these patients, although it could be individualized. Um, Anyone feel differently? Do you guys feel kind of the same?
3: For the record, I I agree. I I do not want to put a port in a fellow eye. That was a a pure speculation, but uh, I do feel more comfortable getting out of that two-year window like we were talking about that uh, hopefully that fellow eye can remain more stable. And I think even, let's
0: say hypothetically, this was a 10% conversion rate after two years. Let's say we had something that was 100% effective and we had 0% conversion, but we only helped 10% of that patient population. You know, what does that look like from a healthcare economic standpoint? Do we take every yeah. high risk AMD patient and put them through expensive therapy
1: to save 10%? I mean, for those 10% of patients, that would really be a big difference. But uh, it would be interesting cost calculation, because what is the cost of 10% of all AMD patients in this category going blind? Yeah. Like, I don't know the answer to that i think the cost would probably work out in your favor because blindness carries such a big devastating psychological obviously but even if you were just a dollars and tax guy i mean it's it's economically it's disastrous right, right. so but you're right um but i would say logistically how would you do that like it, it's already it'd be impossible like it would depend on your delivery method but um it's really a fascinating question and it then the real question is going to be which we don't answer to and i'm not i'm gonna leave this hanging We don't have to answer it today because we don't know the answer is what happens when you do long duration anti-VEGF therapy and all of a sudden now their their geographic atrophy is going out of control and you don't have treatment for that. And did you make that worse or is that just the natural progress of this disease? Like Nick said, the two-year window, I would imagine a lot of those patients don't fall in that two-year window. It'd be interesting what percentage of those patients went down the GA pathway instead Um, because maybe that eye is just behaving a little differently. And then if you do believe there's some correlation between CMVM formation and lack of GA, maybe that eye never formed a CMVM and therefore is more prone to GA. And, and I'm not smart enough to the answer to that. Maybe Yoshi or Nick or Sabine is, but any, any final thoughts from anyone before we break?
2: No, um, I think uh, early detection is really important. Uh, when you're treating somebody's right eye with wet AMD coming in very frequently, their left eye, even if it converts, you catch it early, even if they didn't uh, notice any symptoms as opposed to the dry AMD patients that we follow every six months. On that six-month visit, a lot of them come in with, you know, rip-roaring CNVM, but they're like, uh, I don't I didn't really notice anything. And so uh, prophylaxis is one, but early detection is another. And so uh, home monitoring, et cetera, I think will be uh, big in the future.
1: And that's just, again, the, the preaching of the choir, but I think we get so, I can tell my fellows and residents all the time, we get so caught up when a patient's getting injected in one eye, they're getting OCT, they're getting OCT, they're getting OCT. They're getting OCT. We're always looking at the treatment eye. You have to look at that study eye image, whether it's simply for liability reasons. I mean, the fellow eye you have, but it's really for ethical reasons. You have to look at that eye because sometimes that's their better seeing eye. And you're right, Yoshi. A lot of times they don't notice the exudation. And that is the one side benefit of bringing them in for such frequent injections. They get the side benefit. Usually most practices will just quickly capture images of both eyes always review all those cuts, always look through them because you're amazed how many times patients asymptomatic and you look and you're like, whoop, there's a new fluid there. And you may start treating them even if they're asymptomatic and they have good vision because the other eyes not have great work, useful and workable vision. So um, good, we ended on a positive note. I love it. You guys were great. Thank you so much for doing this journal club, uh, Nick Farber, Sabin and Yoshi Yonokawa. Thanks again. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 295 episodes can be found. there, sorted by category. Um, You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, This episode and a few other journal clubs are available on YouTube if you want to see our not-so-pretty faces in addition to the voices you hear on the podcast. It's up on their YouTube channel, which is uh, the Straight From the Cutter's Mouth Retina Podcast channel. Uh, you can fi- follow us in many ways. You can subscribe via your mobile device in the podcast section of your Android or Apple device. You can click the subscribe link on our website, and that will get you email updates as episodes release. And you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. There are many ways to contact us. You can use social media. You can email us directly at retinapodcast.gmail.com or click the contact us link on our website. Many thanks to doctors Dang, Farber, and Yonokawa for joining me for this episode. Thanks to Justin Ma for his help with the YouTube channel. Thanks to Drs. Angela Chang, Louis Kai, and Mike Minacasa for the production and social media accompanying this episode. Listeners, thank you for what you do on a daily basis, the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here each week, and the patients you take care of every day. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off.
3: feeling This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth.
1: <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye.